For me, it is the, the absolutely the most fundamental part of what makes us a human being is the ability to listen and be listened to. And if we have no one in our life who is listening to us, we're going to look for mechanisms where, where we feel that we're being listened to. But and so we get caught into believing that the AI is a real human being because it's giving us all of the evidence to suggest that it is. It's doing all the things that a listening human being would do. Problem is, there's nothing. There's no. There's nothing beyond that. It's you're caught in a loop, and and and, and that's when it can, becomes psychologically very dangerous. In Youth We Trust sits down with successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, educators, and others from around the world. We spotlight how individuals and organizations are shaping a better world, directly or indirectly, for the coming generations through their focus on sustainability, equity, education, and more to empower young people to create the future they deserve. And now, in Youth We Trust. We are teaching young people to fish when the river is about to dry up. My guest today is Darren Coxon, and he's not talking about climate change, but about an education system that hasn't changed in 250 years, a system that is about to face the full force of AI. Darren is a seasoned educator, but also an optimist who's integrating AI into education with a missionary zeal to make this transition smoother and shorter. He speaks with candor, clarity, but above all, a heartwarming honesty. Good morning, Darren, and welcome to the podcast in Youth We Trust. Great, that's really, really fantastic for you to have me on. <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's been very exciting to hear about all the different things you've done. Uh, you know, you as a person. So let's explore that a little bit. Sure. Uh, but f- but first, as I always do, um, let me start by taking you back to your younger self, mm-hmm. and and to ask you a very simple question. When you were growing up, what is that quest that you would have liked to go on? And then for context, Lumi runs quests which mm-hmm. give young people an opportunity to shape and solve the problems that really matter and through that build skills. Um, but the problems are very important. So what would have been yours? That's such a good question. So I I didn't have probably the most positive school experience. Um, I had I was very badly bullied throughout a lot of my my time at school, and it's actually quite ironic that I actually even ended up as a teacher because when I look back, actually school was not a great a great time for me. So actually, when I left school, I didn't have that many I didn't have much of an understanding about what what I wanted to be and so therefore the notion of quest wouldn't necessarily be something that I would have even considered I went on my own I suppose my own quest and that I spent six months traveling through Southeast Asia and through that I discovered journaling my experiences and I discovered uh, poetry and I discovered some really wonderful writers um, mainly just through traveling from one country to the next when i started to read and kind of and, and and feel that world the world of literature that's what came alive to me then so i i think probably the the quest that i i found myself was through through traveling outside of my hugely outside of my comforts i was an 18 19 year old guy very very naive and actually 
through traveling through Southeast Asia, usual sort of usual routes, Malaysia, Indonesia, and through discovering literature and writing, I actually spent five years out of, of, of education. I became a portrait photographer and I, I did all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful things. But I always had this connection with, with words, with literature. And that's really why at the right time when I was 23, 24, I then went back to school and then I went to university to Cardiff to read English literature and, and then became a teacher and then the rest is history. So I think really that quest, that notion of quest is an interesting one. I remember reading Gulag, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, which is a very heavy book on a beach in Thailand, it's a slight anachronism. But it was through that that I started to think, do you know what? Words are going to be part of my life. Language is going to be part of my life. And, and really, yeah, as I said, the rest is history. The rest is history, yeah, I think. I, I do agree. Reading Gulag on the Beach doesn't... You know, Gulag on the, reading Gulag on the Beach, that's a great title for a book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's not the most obvious thing that comes to mind. Five years not going to university... How did you have the guts to do that? Like, what kind of challenges did you face? Did your parents not say, have you lost your mind or what? Throughout all of my young life, my sister was very, very unwell and spent most of her time in hospital. And at the time that I traveled, she was starting to get a little bit better. But essentially, my parents were, had all their energies and their attentions focused on my sister, quite rightly. But there was definitely a sense that they trusted me that they kind of knew that I wasn't ready to go to university. I completely lost my way at age 23, like really lost my way. I got in, fallen in with the wrong crowd, making bad decisions. I was, I was writing really bad poetry at that point, thinking I was this new sort of poet. But actually, I look back and it was really bad poetry. And my mother actually sent me an advertisement, a clipping of an advertisement for this particular course back in my hometown. And it was that light, light bulb moment. I thought, she's absolutely right. So I think she, it almost felt like they gave me four or five years to kind of play around with working out what on earth I was going to do with my life. And then it was like, do you know what, Darren? Sort your life out. And I did. And I did. So it was fine. Wow. And uh, now to the second part of uh, your, your, what you've just told me about your childhood. Was there a problem that you saw around you that you wanted to solve? Like you talked about bullying, but... Could, there could have been other issues that you saw around you that you thought, I wish I could actually solve these problems. Is there anything that stood out? I think, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the, and I think it has changed. So I think the problem in some respects has been solved because this was, this was the time before the Children Act in 1989. There were really no protections for children at that time in the way that there are now. There was no safeguarding. There was no keeping children safe in education, no child protection. There, was just, there were no services around children, no CAMs. It was, just didn't exist. I think there's a huge problem with young people who want to speak to someone but the only entity that they can now speak to will be my Snapchat, my AI, which I think is a deeply insidious presence. And I'm very happy to explore that later. I, 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 don't, like, I don't like it as a mechanism for, for, for young people to explore who they are. So I think we are definitely now, maybe even slightly have gone full circle, but we're definitely in the situation where we, we, have a, we have a bit of a crisis with young people, children, teenagers who have no one to talk to. Have no have no ability to 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 explore who they are through through the people around them for whatever reason. I think social media can be a really big problem in all of that. So I think that's definitely where, if I look back on the journey I've been on, where I am now, what I would have done when I look back on my on my life, definitely that notion of voice and how powerful it is, not to speak, 
but to be listened to. And they're very different things because we can all talk and, and there's such a huge difference between who, who we are when we are just talking, but then who we are when we know and we can tell that the other person is not just listening to us, but really, like, really actively engaged in our world. Very interesting. Um, so now that you look at where you are today, what's the one skill that you would have you would be wanting to give to your younger self that would have helped you solve the problems that you saw at, at that time? Um, not to not to take everything personally, and it's still a battle for me today. It's still a battle for me today. Not to see every single problem which is external to me as somehow being either my problem to solve or, or a problem that I have caused. Oh, that's very interesting. So let's look at, uh, you know, the, the cohort of the young generation today, mm. right? You briefly talked about education and the challenges that you see within it. What challenges do you see with the system today? Okay, so so the the, the the school system that we have essentially is the same as it's been for uh, essentially 250 years. If you look at um, Frederick, you know, um, the, the, the Prussian uh, king, King Frederick in, in 17, about 1789, it was that it was around about that time that the notion of formal schooling. So it, it goes it goes back way before Horace Mann. It goes way back before what we did in, in the in the mid nineteenth century in the British education system. This is a two hundred and fifty year old system, but probably for roughly the last fifty years. I mean, it's maybe more seventy with AI coming in in the mid nineteen fifties. But I would say probably since the early nineteen seventies with the notion of the microprocessor, and then we've got IBM and Microsoft and Apple and so on and so forth, and then social media and now AI. But the system itself just hasn't changed at all. And so the problem that we have now, and I can't remember the name of the writer. It's, it's really bugging me. I've just been trying to think of the name of the writer who's been speaking. But there's a, 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 there was a book called Learning for Tomorrow. It was written in 1974, so 50 years ago. It's going to really bug me. And basically what he says is this. He says, imagine the idea of a, a, a tribe of North American Indians. And their whole world, their whole life is based around on the river. And they teach their children how to fish on the river. And they teach their children how to build boats. Way upstream, a dam is being built. Okay. They don't know that this dam is being built way upstream. And so what they're doing is they're training their young based on the, the current world, the, con, the, cult, the, cult, the cultural and, the, and the, the social and all of the contextual elements, societal elements that make, that, to sustain them. But actually, the river's about to dry up. And that's where, and, 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 and what, what he says is that that's kind of where we are with our education system. And this was 50 years ago. That, 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 that basically, we, we, we are building boats for a river that's dried up. You know, we're teaching children to fish when there are no fish there because they're, they're, the, the river's dried up. Since AI, since November 2022, since the release of ChatGPT, Moore's law does not exist because AI, previously, the reason that we had increases in processing power, et cetera, is because of human intervention. You know, people would be making these microprocessors smaller and smaller and smaller, and they would be increasing the memory of these systems. Now we've got AI teaching itself. 
you know, really since probably the last 15 years, 10 to 15 years, particularly if you look at the work of DeepMind with AlphaGo, you know, deep learning, sort of deep learning techniques. Basically, what we have now is we have AIs that teach themselves. We don't, it doesn't need human intervention. So Moore's law doesn't, doesn't apply because actually we've got this further compounding effect of an AI which is teaching itself. So, and all the time, school stands still. School, and, and it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pulling apart where we've got the school system, which is not moving. And we've got every other part of the world. If you look at the finance system, if you look at the health system, if you look at every other system in the world, every other important organizational structure in the world has moved on, has adapted. Education hasn't moved. The reason education hasn't moved is because it hasn't needed to, because it's kind of been a bit of a safe harbor for young people growing up. And let's not rock the boat because we don't want to make things too disruptive because, you know, they need to grow and they need to learn. But now we're at the point of it's about to break. And it is about to break. And I think it probably will get worse before it gets better. And I think we're almost at the tipping point, the inflection point, the point where the elastic is literally about to snap because we have, we have such cognitive dissonance between everything else in our world. There is absolutely no difference whatsoever in what I was doing 26 years ago to what I am, did at the beginning of last year where I was back in the classroom a year ago today. I was back in the classroom teaching English in the school in Tunisia. I was, I was executive head at the school and, I, and they lost their English teacher. So I went in. There was fundamentally no difference. The only difference really was that the pupils themselves were, they had no attention span. They, it was, you know, they, they, the, the, the there was, there was, there was, there was a difference to them. Definitely. Which meant them really hard to teach. But in terms of the, 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 the system, the classroom facing forward with the board, no. So I think that's why, we're in the that we've got these problems. We've got this stretching, this tension between the system as it is, education, and the fact the world is just accelerating off at a rate of knots, and we're just being left behind. Mm. So, who's to blame? Why is it not changing? I mean, you know, why have all the other sectors changed? So, do you think it's the government? Do you think it's the fact that employers ultimately keep employing people or is it the schools? Who do you think needs to take more responsibility here? Parents, government or the schools themselves or the so, corporate companies? Yeah, so I think the first the first question was why hasn't it changed? Yes. And I think that's that's important to address first. I think the reason why it hasn't changed is because it's not needed to change. And it's because children don't know any different and so they're not they're not they're not look if you if you compare it to let's say finance the finance has changed so greatly because of basically the law competitive you know that a bank had to stay keep up with other banks because if it didn't it was going to close and and, and you know it was going to lose out to other banks what student is going to turn around and say well i just decided i want a different education so i'm going to go to this school they well a they don't decide their parents decide by and large and so actually we don't know what's going on inside the classroom. Parents don't. And also, what's, there's no, there are no real competitive laws with education. It's like, if you look, I'm just going to take the UK as an example. Okay, there are 32,000 schools in the UK, okay, in total. There's only a, a few, a handful, a few thousand, probably 5% of those are independent schools, are fee-paying schools. And of those, less than half are boarding schools. And so education is a profoundly local and enterprise, business endeavor. 
you go to the school probably within 30 minutes of your local environment. Final point is about the fact it doesn't change is that everything that we do in a school is deferred. It's deferred value. Okay. It's delayed value. It's so, so we're not, we're not doing, it's not really about even value add. It's about value because we, 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 we invest in children. In fact, children are just children. They're in the classroom and what are they going to do? Because they've got no, they've got no agency and they've got no power. They've got no control. Final point around it is the fact that actually in a school, I'm not talking about university, but in a school, and this is the point that I made in, and I think a blog post that I wrote a while back that you mentioned just when we first started speaking before the, the podcast began. One of the reasons why things haven't changed is because the universities dictate the hop-off point. You know, we, we know that if I'm a school teacher or a head teacher in a school, at the age of 18, that, that, those children are going to move to university and they're going to need A-level, IB, UCAS points, GPA in the States, SATs, whatever it is, whatever the, you know, the, 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 whatever the local um, equivalent is in, in, in whatever part of the world. And so everything that we do, I mean, everything that we do leads us to that hop-off point. And so it's the tail wagging the dog. And I've said this all for so, so, so much in my career. The university tail wags the school dog. The, the, the fact that actually most universities aren't really interested in teaching, they're really, really interested in furthering their research. Teaching is very often huge second to, to, to what, the, the, what the, the research element of a university. And so everything that we do to the point of age 18 is basically dictated by the fact that these kids want to, to go to a, a good university. So until that, until that changes, and until we see maybe a blurring of the boundary between school and university, which I think definitely has to happen and should happen. So what is going to change that now? So what will change it now, I think, is um, parents and far more empowered and worldly and um, young people have a lot more access to information voting with their feet and not going to university. Because I think what is going to happen in the next, and I don't think this will happen overnight. I mean, we're talking a few years away. What I think will probably happen, and what I hope will happen, is that what we'll see over the next few years are more and more companies and businesses offering um, placements to, for very bright young people where they get additional support and training on the job and, and, and with an AI tutor. And I think as soon as you realize that you have a, a consistent support, like, a, like, a, like your own little teacher PA, you know, your own little sort of teacher mentor who learns and grows with you and understands you and knows where you're on your learning journey and can recommend resources and training and support and you can talk to and they, 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 will, they will get better in terms of their memory, their context windows will improve, improve, improve. They'll remember more and more stuff about us. At that point, you start thinking, well, why, why do we have any of these points? Because actually learning just becomes something which is continuous. And, I, and the, other, the final point I'll make, and I've noticed this even with my sons and my daughters. So I have a 16-year-old daughter. She's just started her A-levels. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And my, I've noticed particularly with my seven-year-old and my 16-year-old, when I look back to when I first started teaching, my goodness me, they are so much sharper and they have so much access to information 
than even 25 years ago when I passed, and certainly when I was at school. They are so much more worldly. They are, have so much more of an understanding. They have so much more of a social conscience. Even my seven-year-old understands these things. He uses chat GPT and perplexity all the time. He, he's interested and curious about the world because he has access to these technologies. I actually think by the age of 16, most kids are ready to really start to make a difference. My daughter, my 16-year-old, genuinely could, could, I would send her to the UN and she could speak so eloquently and so fluently and with such passion, people would listen. So I think even the thought, the idea of, oh, we have to wait until kids are 21 or 22 before they can be valuable contributors to the world, I think it's a nonsense. I mean, most kids are already age 16 now to be able to start, not necessarily earn a living, but be able to start giving back. And I think that's where we need to be heading. This episode is brought to you by Lumi.network. We're on a mission to help the next generation prepare to take on the world. Our AI augmented platform runs quests that help 10 to 25 year olds shape their future by developing AI, entrepreneurship, and design thinking skills to solve the most pressing business and social issues. If you or your organization wants to impact the next generation positively, we'd love to talk to you. To learn more, visit lumi.network. That's such an interesting point. I think the, I'm just picking up on that strand that you talked about. One of the problems is that why it doesn't change is we're just making an investment and there's nothing that's happening immediately. Uh, or we, you know, like that happens in companies. Whereas now, uh, the way AI is taking the, changing the world, people will be ready much earlier to kind of contribute back. That's interesting. And and uh, what risks do you see with this technology? You know, we, it's changing everything. It's going to probably force education to change. But in itself, Darren, it pre presents a very significant risk. So now this, I can see the education system, you know, also marrying that with another point that you made earlier, that, you know, we've, one of the problems that has been solved is safeguarding and, and, you know, child protection and things like that. Now you've got this technology, which could bring that problem back and therefore prevent schools from making any kind of meaningful change or justify the inertia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how um, do you see that tension? Yeah, Spoiling I think, um, yeah, no, it's a really interesting observation. I think um, there are definitely risks. I mean, I would say that a lot of the, 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 the attention um, moves towards bias. Okay, so when we talk about AI and, and the potential concerns in, from an educational perspective, a lot of the, the, the concerns around the notion of bias. Now, I'm not for one moment saying that isn't an issue because it is, but I actually think that that can distract potentially away from some of the bigger issues. Because when you talk about the notion of bias with AI, essentially what you're saying is that the, the AI has been trained on a, on, a, on a narrow or on a, on, a, on a data set which has inherent bias. And essentially what it's doing, it's a mirror on us. So, so the AI systems that we have like ChatGPT are, are a mirror of our very best and our very worst. So yes, when we're teaching kids, young people, how to, to, to use AI and how to understand AI, bias is important to, to address and for them to understand 
that these systems do have a bias. I think they're getting better. So this bias, and yes, we need to take it seriously, and yes, we need to to to, to address it with children. But actually, I think the the, the bigger dangers sit in what uh, what what I've just mentioned before: our chatbots, which seemingly befriend a vulnerable child, and because they are a reflection of what the child says to them, essentially. I mean, ultimately, they, they've moved on since Eliza. So Eliza was um, Wiesenbaum's um, chatbot of the 60s or 70s, which was like the first, the first chatbot. It was the first, Eliza was the first chatbot. And all Eliza did, it wasn't AI, it was just machine learning. It was just, it, it, it was trained to, to pick up on a word that the, the, the person said. And it would just say, okay, so you've mentioned your mother. The, the, the response, well, tell me more about your mother. So my AI, so Snapchat's my AI, is, is kind of a slightly more sophisticated version of Eliza, but it essentially works on the same principles where it's reading what the child writes and then it reflects through a series of set phrases. But the problem with it is it doesn't have the sort of guardrails which would steer a child to making the right choices. So there have been instances, and I've seen it. I've seen it demonstrated live. So I've, I've seen this happen, and I don't think it's changed. Where you can actually pretend to be a, a young child, and you can actually have a conversation with my AI, and it can make recommendations which are just—I mean, they are so so wrong, so wrong that actually they could put the child in danger. And I've even tried to address this with Snapchat, and 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 I know other people have, and they're just ignoring. They're they're just ignoring the community, and so we're actually genuinely quite concerned about what they've done with my AI. I think it's actually a very very dangerous presence. So I think that the biggest danger at the moment, and I think this goes back to a point I made earlier on, is that essentially we have a world of children and young people who are desperate to be heard. They're desperate. They are. They're crying out because they're caught in the echo chamber of social media where they are there, but they're not there, where, they're, where they're, 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 their life revolves around the number of likes that they get on their Instagram posts or the number of comments they get on their Twitch feed if they're, twi if they're streaming a, a game or whatever it is, or TikTok, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Their life revolves around the social proof of getting feedback from people they don't know. But they are, they're stuck because they, 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 they're not looking someone in the eye knowing that that person's listening to them. Their parents are really busy. Their friends are all caught in this social media world. Oh, look, all of a sudden, they pick up their phone, they open up Snapchat, and they say, I'm really, I'm feeling really lonely. And the, my AI says, tell, talk, tell me, I'm listening. And so what are they going to do? They're going to dive down that rabbit hole, and they're going to get right inside to the point where they believe and this has happened with adults, by the way. If you look at um, Replica, so Replica is one of the most popular of the chatbots. Well, yes. So if you look at what happened with Replica, Replica had a function where basically you could have a romantic relationship with your AI buddy. They then, and, and it, it, you could kind of get quite adult with it. They then, they then stopped that function for, for, for a while. And the, 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 the outcry from the users, because they've become psychologically dependent because it was the only entity in their life that actually seemed to be listening actively. And the, 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 I, I, for me, it is the, the absolutely the most fundamental part of what makes us a human being. 
is the ability to listen and be listened to. And if we have no one in our life who is listening to us, we're going to look for mechanisms that, 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 that where, where we feel that we're being listened to. But, and so we can get caught into believing that the AI is a real human being because it's giving us all of the evidence to suggest that it is because it's doing all the things that a listening human yeah. being do. But what we I can't, what we can't just like the final, the, 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 prob the problem is there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing beyond that. It's you're caught in a loop and, 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 and that's when it becomes psychologically very dangerous. I can understand that. So there is a, there is a trend as well here, Darren, which is that change is happening, but when something's not going right, there isn't anybody who's listening. You could argue the same thing is true for schools, right? They're not listening, or the government is not listening, the curriculum is not changing, right? Um, so I'm, I'm left with this feeling as to, you know, are entrepreneurs like us, are we the people who have to kind of uh, drive that change? But yeah. that is also very, very tough, as you know. So who drives the change? And you say, you talked about parents, okay? I mean, yeah. If, uh, we're running out of time, but I find parents is the weakest link in this whole thing. They are not aware. My yeah. own conversations with hundreds of parents across the world, social or related to my business, don't seem to make me feel like they understand the threat of AI. Yeah. Or they understand the impact of climate change on their own kids. So how do you change that entity? And again, it goes back to this, I, this, this problem that we have in education that we're always waiting for that end point. That so as long as our kids are happy and they seem to be doing okay and they seem to be learning and they're not getting into any trouble and they're, you know, they're happy to go to school in the morning. I think a lot of us, particularly when we live very busy lives, which we all do as adults, you know, we, we, a lot of families are dual, dual, you know, working parents and, and often the parent, you, you just, you just think, well, actually, do you know what? They're okay. They're doing okay. And I think if that's the case, then, well, why rock the boat? Why, 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 why worry? So, so of course I'm not going to worry. So I think you're absolutely right. I think the parents are the weakest link. I think what will probably change, what might change, is when the students themselves start to say, you know what, I've got all of this information. Well, I think what's going to happen is more and more kids are just going to grow up. See, AI is just being one of the presences in their lives and they're going to start questioning, why am I listening to this person talking at me when actually I'm learning more, not just I could learn more, but I am learning more from my, my AI mentor, my AI buddy from whatever it is that I'm using. So I think it might be that the, the children start to say, what am they, they, then they're refusing school. They're unhappy. They're, you know, they're, they're eating disorders increase, which they are particularly in the States going through the roof, as you know, all of these problems, maybe at that point, parents are going to start thinking, something's wrong here but i think until that happens which is why all the way back to my first point i think it is going to get worse before it gets better to end give me a sense of where do you see the future what's your wildest prediction about yeah. where we are going to be by 2040 say not too far away but yeah so i think there'll be a few things that happen i kind of refer to them as the, the three d's decentralization democratization and differentiation and i think what this is what what i think it will happen is that we will see a lot more democratization and decentralization of our education structures. I think we'll see a lot more smaller local 
entities, small boutique schools, groups of parents getting together, educating their children, you know, small collectives, like little autonomous collectives where we start having these self-governing structures like educational DAOs using, you know, leveraging the blockchain. Uh, and then I think actually within that, you have this notion of what I call dynamic differentiation, that we've got AI who can constantly work in the background, tweaking the learning goals, tweaking the learning journey, presenting um, the students with what they need at the time they need it. And then I think the last point, again, goes to the point that we both sort of touched on, this idea of the, the blurring of the boundaries between you know, you have a junior school and a senior school and a university. Well, I think all of that goes out the window. I just think you'll have places where you go to learn the things that you need in order to get to the next stage in your development, to become a contributor to society in one shape or form, not necessarily even get a job, maybe to start your own business or, or whatever it is. And then I think actually the final point is around, well, what is going to happen to work anyway? Because quite frankly, you know, we already have chat gpt4 which is a very blunt instrument when we have agi and then we have super intelligence so we have agi which is basically as smart as the smartest human on earth and then it will soon become a super intelligent entity which can do things better than faster than us well what will that do to the notion of work anyway how, how is that going to change what the average person and then we start talking about universal basic income we start talking about will we have more leisure time is that a good thing will we lose our sense of purpose so you know the the pessimist in me can you can start going down the rabbit hole of it's just going to be a miserable existence because none ai will do everything so what's the point of us but i think if we take it from the positive way it could free us to think bigger to to, to be able to work alongside like the notion of cyborg i think that's going to really happen so yeah the the james lovelock um, with Novacine, um, Andy Clark, with um, the work he's done around um, the sort of the, the, the extension of the self through machines that we've had since we've had pens. So I think education is going to be about local, about um, the blurring of the boundaries of the stages, and then about how we partner with machines to be able to have bigger and bigger thoughts about the future. How interesting. Uh... Darren, I think you've uh, you've taken me on quite a journey. So um, uh, you're right. I think there are many challenges uh, to solve. Thank you for for uh, for joining me here. And uh, until next time. Thanks, Prashant. It's been a real pleasure, genuinely. And and I think yeah, I'd love to explore some of these ideas further with you. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a story or someone you know does, please recommend them to us by email at hello at lumi.network. We'll see you next time on In Youth We Trust. <laughs>